It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, as I say, right across the country. And also, you can check out our SoundCloud. You can also check out our website at elmntfm.ca. You can then choose your uh, desired station that you would like to listen to from that point. Check out what we're doing on uh, our other social media platforms, as well as other things there. Find out about uh, some of our on-air personalities, etc., etc., And it is a pleasure to welcome two guests to the show today. I have with me Byram Bridal. He's an associate professor of viral immunology at the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. And also Cheyenne Sharif, and he's professor of immunology and associate dean at research and graduate studies also at the University of Guelph. So welcome to both of you. Thank you, Thank you David. My pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure to have you both here. Uh, now, the two of you uh, co-authored uh, an article that is in the conversation, uh, fast-tracking COVID-19 vaccine timelines. Uh, the concern is that you had was that these timelines are, are unrealistic um, and could put the integrity of scientists at risk. Now, we've heard a lot about the vaccines. We've heard a lot about the desire to have the vaccines fast-tracked. We've heard a lot about some front-runners. We've heard a lot about different ways that these are... You know, I've seen a lot of documentaries that have come out about uh, vaccines and, and pandemics and how to approach them. Um, so... I guess, you know, reading over the article, it does bring up some interesting points, uh, certainly some points that make sense in terms of approaching something like this. In terms of, for instance, in the past, it has always taken quite a long time for a vaccine to come to fruition and be tested in the the positive, the, the correct way in order for it to hit all the marks to make sure that it is, it is uh, standing up to the quality. It's going to uh, perhaps not put people at more risk uh, from other, uh, you know, from something from the vaccine itself. Uh, your article raises some concern about fast tracking uh, because it could, as you, as you say, not only put scientists at risk, at integrity at risk, uh, but put could put people at risk as well. And, and, so I'm wondering how uh, who would like to start talking about that. Uh, I, I could, if you like, David. Sure. This is Byram. So, yeah, the issue that you raise is a very important one. We, both Shan and I, are very concerned. Um, one of the tasks that we have as scientists is peer review, and I can tell you that uh, even right up to uh, yesterday, I was looking at. Um, some you know projects that have been uh, funded by the Canadian government, vaccine-related projects, and these and, and some of our fellow scientists are still promising, remarkably, that uh, the vaccines that are still clearly in the preclinical stage of development will apparently be ready for people uh, a year from now. And these are scientists, which honestly, when we serve on grant review panels with them, I have seen them. Uh, cause grant applications to not be funded because applicants making um, claims that aren't even anywhere close to what these claims are 
uh, are deemed to be unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the grant application is deemed to be not feasible and mm -hmm. therefore cannot be funded. And yet, many scientists right now are going against sort of their historical approach to peer review and are making these uh, crazy claims. So just to explain why, for example, uh, somebody right now who's in the preclinical stage of vaccine development likely does not have a chance of having a vaccine available anywhere close to a year from now is, is this. If you forget about the preclinical stage, so that's when we're, we're working with um, cell lines and animal models, right? We haven't even come close to being able to take the research into people. Um, that alone can take years. Then if you have something that looks very promising in a preclinical study, it has to go through what we call the clinical trial phase. And the clinical trials, there's typically three clinical trial phases that have to be completed, and usually they're done one after the other. There's a phase one, and that usually emphasizes safety of the product. So in this case, safety of a vaccine for COVID-19. Then it goes to a phase two trial where you start evaluating how well the vaccine would work. And ultimately, a phase three trial has to be successfully completed, and that is a large-scale study in people. And, and that is the one that has to provide definitive evidence that the vaccine is not only safe, but also effective. Then it can be uh, distributed for use in people. Um, and that clinical trial phase alone historically takes an average of 10 to 15 years. Now, with that said, um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the record that I have seen is I, I've seen a product traverse that clinical trial pipeline in four years, but that is clearly an outlier relative to the average. Um, and I can't possibly see the process being compressed any more than that. So in short, I would say anybody whose vaccine is currently in the preclinical stage of development has no chance, no chance of having that vaccine into people within a year. Um, the only vaccines that were, might be possible is those that are currently in human testing. Uh, but again, trying to compress that phase from four years to one year, there's, there's, there's so many experiments that need to be done. There's so much uh, paperwork that needs to be completed. Um, again, I can't see it physically being compressed. So we're not saying it's impossible, but we're saying it's incredibly improbable. Mm. And you have to keep in mind that after the uh, clinical trial stage is done as well, it's not like now all of a sudden everybody can be vaccinated. Mm. That vaccine has to be manufactured in massive quantities. It has to be quality control tested to make sure there hasn't been any kind of contamination in that batch of the vaccine. Then it has to be distributed. And if you just look at the testing that we're doing right now and the struggles we're having with getting uh, testing of people, uh, those tests widely distributed, um, that's not a simple matter. Just getting a vaccine distributed to enough Canadians could take many months. Mm. Yeah, all, all good points. You, you mentioned uh, safety of the vaccine. Uh, Cheyenne, I'm wondering if, if you could explain what, what, what does that mean when, when uh, Byron mentioned the safety of the vaccine? Because that could mean a whole lot of things to many people. Uh, yes, it does. Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, what we do is that we, cha uh, we check safety of vaccines in animal models first and foremost. And then once uh, safety has been checked, then it has to be um, applied to humans. It has to be inoculated into humans in order to ensure that uh, those individuals, those volunteers can indeed uh, tolerate the vaccine really well. And there are multitudes of things that are taken in, into consideration, both at the, at the molecular level when it comes down to vaccines and also at the whole individual level. So things such as, for example, it could be as simple as 
fever. It could be as simple as flu-like symptoms because some vaccines do actually induce those sorts of um, clinical signs and symptoms. So uh, you need to look at um, what is the cost not only cost in terms of economical cost of vaccines, but also you know the cost in human life, and also what are the benefits, and whether or not those benefits would outweigh the cost mm. and risks associated with vaccines. But there are also you know some more serious concerns that could actually be raised in the future due to safety concerns, such as for example in the past we've had experience of working with SARS vaccines in in human populations, and when you look at human populations. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in animal model populations. In animal models, sometimes SARS vaccines could actually even result in, um, in more significant clinical signs associated with the use of vaccines. There's also a phenomenon called um, enhancement, antigen enhancement, and that actually has to do with the fact that sometimes immune system cells can bind to viruses that are bound to antibodies that are produced because of vaccination. And instead of making things better, they could actually make things even worse mm. in, the, in the individual. So mm. things could actually be ranging uh, from very mild signs and symptoms, such as, for example, fever or flu-like symptoms to things you know, that could be even much more severe and serious, such as, for example, in the context of, uh, like I said, vaccines against SARS, things could even be very uh, grave um, in terms of um, some of the consequences of vaccination. So those are actually some of the safety issues that one would have to look at. And as Byram said, it would take a long time to first test those in, in animal models and also then test them in human populations. Now, they're saying, of course, that there could be a second, possibly third wave, uh, similar to, I guess, uh, going back 100 years with the Spanish flu. Uh, and we're talking about herd, mental herd uh, uh, immunity uh, around this as well, with that timeline uh, going forward uh, every day. Uh, more and more people uh, have been uh, testing positive. Uh, I, I guess there, there's also lots of a talk around different approaches that are being uh, taken. Uh, I think I heard something. Is there some, something about proteins or something about getting the body itself to to uh, do to do, do? Do you know what I'm talking about? There, is it proteins that I'm thinking of? Yes, maybe I can maybe maybe I can chime in here sure. and then I'll pass on the torch to Byram. Yes, you are actually talking about some proteins, and those proteins are in fact antibodies. So antibodies are produced by immune system cells. Mm. So in our body, we produce tons of those antibodies on a regular basis, and they're against a wide variety of different pathogens. So for example, when we get our seasonal flu vaccines, are we are dependent on the presence of those so-called antibodies that uh, work towards getting rid of the virus or reducing the amount of virus and, and hence would be able to reduce clinical signs and symptoms associated with influenza if we do get infected. So we are very much dependent on the presence of those so-called antibodies that are present in our blood. And also they're present in our, um, uh, in, in our, in our other tissues, such as, for example, in the upper respiratory system, in our nose, in our trachea, in our, and also deeper down in our respiratory system, for example, in the lungs. So what you're talking about uh, is herd immunity, which is the fact that when we are exposed as human populations, we are exposed to pathogens, or when we are vaccinated against the pathogen, and path by pathogen, I mean any kind of disease-causing microbes. 
either viruses, bacteria, or other things like, uh, for example, a fungus or a protozoa. Uh, these would all cause diseases, and we do produce antibodies against those. Um, if we have a human population that is exposed to, let's say, an influenza virus or COVID-19, usually we all try to respond to it. Some of us respond better, some of us are going to respond less to those viruses or other types of disease-causing microbes. Uh, the elderly have a tendency to produce less antibodies. And also in children, very young children, they also have a tendency to produce less antibodies. And if they produce antibodies, those antibodies are not necessarily very effective against pathogens. So that's basically why we have vulnerable populations, either in the very young or in the very old. So, but most of the time we do produce good amount of antibodies. And the idea is that if you have, let's say 60, 70%, up to 80%, 85% of our population exposed to a virus, almost all of them are gonna be able to produce antibodies against, um, let's say a virus. And as a result of that, those individuals would become immune meaning that they're going to be protected against the virus. And as a result of that, the virus is not going to find any place to infect. And as a result of that, you can disrupt transmission of the virus from one individual to another individual. So the idea of herd immunity is that if you have enough immunity in a population, either caused by a natural infection or caused by vaccination, you would actually be able to disrupt transmission of the virus from one individual to another individual. In other words, if we had 80% or 70% of all Torontonians being infected and being able to raise an antibody response to COVID-19 virus or called uh, scientifically SARS-CoV-2, then we would actually be able to see the end of the pandemic. That's basically the idea of herd immunity. And by vaccination, scientists, including ourselves, are trying to induce the same level of immunity in human populations. It sounds like for in the short term that herd immunity is is the best uh, the best approach. Uh, however, um, what what you don't want, of course, is 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 a massive amount of people, and I guess that's why they've taken the steps that they have to slow the spread of this, so that it doesn't overwhelm the health system. Um, but ultimately, uh, we will be where we will have to get exposed to this because it's something that ha has not been around before. It's going to spread. I'll pass this on to Dr. Bridal. Okay. Uh, yeah, you, you raised some uh, great points, and um, this herd, herd immunity. So the actual, so the reason why that the you know we've we've put in these strict policies around COVID nineteen is indeed to to dramatically stretch out this progression towards herd immunity. Uh, and this is exactly why, this is going to get to the point why Cheyenne and I felt obligated on, on behalf of the scientific community to speak up on this issue. Because if one applies the strict COVID-19 policies that we have, these isolation policies, the idea is if we do nothing else, we will eventually achieve herd immunity. And that's because, as we've seen, when we have these full COVID-19 measures, isolation measures in place, the cases have continued to occur. Um, and, and so that, that would continue right through to the end until uh, herd immunity is achieved naturally. Epidemiolo ep epidemiologists in their modeling 
many of them have predicted that if we kept in place these strict isolation policies, that we would uh, delay the progression towards uh, overall herd immunity to about two years. And that's where this time frame comes in. Mm. So the idea is, if if you predict the pandemic is and, and that is debatable, right? But it, but if if you start uh, agreeing with what a lot of the epidemiologists are saying, and you say it's going to end naturally in two years, then that's the time frame we're working in. And this starts telling you why everybody's aiming for a vaccine. Uh, for example, with this warp speed program that Donald mm. uh, Trump has implemented. That's why, you know, he's aiming for October to have a vaccine available for people. And others are saying, you know, if we don't have a vaccine available by very early in 2021, it's not going to be particularly useful at that point, right? Because to apply it at the tail end of a pandemic, uh, where the case caseload has decreased dramatically, and the majority of people are now naturally immune, you know, that vaccine is not going to be particularly helpful. And you can certainly start questioning, is it worth any potential safety risk? Mm. Is it worth the enormous cost? So that's kind of why there's this rush, right? This real rush for it. But this is exactly, this gets to the to the point because government policies, uh, you know, d- d- our decision makers are, are basing a lot of the policies that are developing on the promise of a vaccine. So the reason why, so for example, if we didn't implement any, of the isolation policies at all, our population, you know, in Canada, we would have progressed to towards herd immunity very rapidly. And as you pointed out, we couldn't, that's not feasible because in the sense that if you have too many cases at the occurring simultaneously, too many severe cases of COVID-19 that require hospitalization, that would overwhelm our health resources. So first of all, by slowing it down, it allows our, our health resources to, to deal with these problems. Um, but, but, but the other thing is, the other reason why you know, we've chosen to take the approach that we'll really lengthen it out is to give scientists time, to buy that time, to find something that can get us towards herd immunity without developing the total number of cases and deaths that would be associated with that natural progression. And the only thing that could stop that uh, in its tracks is a vaccine. Um, and that again is because, as Cheyenne mentioned, when a vaccine is given, it simulates it simulates the infection. So it, it tricks our body into thinking that it's infected with the SARS coronavirus too, and our body mounts an immune response. And a vaccine is only useful if it induces what we call a memory response, and that means that our, our immune system remembers the pathogen that it responded to. So then, when it sees it uh, the next time. And if you've been vaccinated, that means the next time would be the first time you're actually seeing the real virus. It will respond much faster and much more robustly, you know, clear that virus out of the body. And, uh, and typically an individual will not experience any sickness as a result. So now you can see we're, we're doing this to buy time to find some kind of invention. Now, the other thing I should point out is in, in uh, Ontario, effective uh, Monday, Right, we are loosening a lot of these mm-hmm. isolation policies. Mm-hmm. Many people are going back to work. Um, well, sorry, I shouldn't just say the 29th. Actually, this this phase in has been happening for a while already. Right, we're loosening these isolation right. policies, and that is going to shorten the time that, that it's going to take for us to progress. So you could argue then that a vaccine. The more we loosen these policies, the the sooner we need a vaccine if we're going to prevent uh, deaths and sickness from this. And the result is. Uh, yes, we probably will have a second wave, and then we'll implement you know tighter isolation policies again. There's a third wave; we may do it again. 
But by loosening the policies, we're shortening that overall time frame. And that, again, just makes it even more unrealistic that we potentially have a vaccine available. And I just want to touch on, on several things that you and Cheyenne discussed. Um, a great example, as I mentioned, the only vaccines that would have good hope of being available uh, for people in time would be those that are currently in trials. I just want to highlight as a, as a, as a great example uh, of why we're concerned even about some of those vaccines. Uh, the company Moderna was has been in the news quite a bit recently. They're one of the ones being funded through this Warp Speed program through the in the United States. And one of the interesting things there is, although they're fairly far along, you know, and in, in entering phase two trials, um, they released data on only eight volunteers that were vaccinated. And what was interesting with that is they found that uh, as they increased the dose of their vaccine, it became more effective in terms of reducing immune response that could potentially be protective against COVID-19. But what I want to point out is when they released that data, they didn't tell anybody what the magnitude of the response is. And as you heard, Shane mentioned that the magnitude of the response is important or you're not going to have proper protection. They didn't tell us what the quality of the response was because as Shane has pointed out, if you have an inappropriate type of immune response, uh, it could actually be potentially dangerous by exacerbating the disease. So you have to have a good, a good magnitude response. You also have the right type of response. And then the other thing which was very interesting is they reported supposedly positive results on eight volunteers, but uh, what they, I don't think what they were expecting is one of the uh, anonymous volunteers came out to the media. Uh, I think it was in an attempt actually to promote the Moderna vaccine, but uh, what they highlighted um, was that they had experienced some issues with the vaccine and this gets to the safety aspect that you were talking to Cheyenne mm -hmm. about, right? Mm -hmm. So it turns out that of those eight volunteers, three of them experienced severe adverse events. This is what Cheyenne was talking about. Mm -hmm. So for example, the one that came forward experienced such a severe fever that they actually had to be hospitalized. So that counts as a severe adverse event, which is not acceptable uh, for use in people. And, and then worse than that, when that individual was released from the hospital and went home, they actually collapsed unconscious. And uh, this was attributed to an effect of the vaccine. So a second severe adverse event. So then what was discovered is three of those eight volunteers actually experienced severe adverse events. And then what was found out, what was further dug down on, is those were the three that received the highest dose of the vaccine, mm. at which the company had clearly stated also gave, quotes, the best immune response. So now when they're going to the phase two trial, of course, they've been forced to go to a lower dose, which when you go back to the original announcement would also suggest it's a poor uh, quality uh, immune response, right? So when you put all these things together, even those that are in the lead, it's, it's, we may be far off, but we can tell you scientific rigor requires time to make sure that we're making sure everything is working properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Please don't go away. We will be right back after this with more. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. 
My guests here on Moment of Truth are Byram Bridal. He is an associate professor of viral immunology at the Department of Patho- Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, and also uh, Cheyenne Sharif, and he's a professor of immunology and associate dean at the Research and Graduate Studies Department with the University of Guelph. It's a pleasure to have them both on. Uh, we're talking about, uh, we were starting uh, the conversation based on an, uh, an, uh, an article they co-authored uh, in the conversation about uh, fast-tracking the vaccine and the timelines around that. Uh, it's gotten us into a number of other things around vaccines and uh, the, the, the potential of uh, rushing something like that, that as you just may, maybe heard uh, Byron mention. And um, it, there were a couple of interesting things there, uh, gentlemen, that, that were, were raised, though. Um, uh, Cheyenne, you mentioned that uh, you know, the youth and the elderly don't produce as much as many antibodies. Is that what you were saying? Uh, yes, I, I mentioned uh, the, the very young. I, yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I just wanted to clarify that what I meant was mostly, you know, neonates and very young children. Yeah. Is it not possible to just boost that in people? Uh, yes, it, it, you can actually boost that in, in people. Did, so maybe I should also, you know, go back a little bit to the, the concept of vaccination. So as Byron uh, clearly mentioned and, and very eloquently put it, you know, we have a couple of issues here, one of which is the development of a vaccine and what vaccine is going to be safe and what vaccine is going to have very limited amount of uh, negative consequences. Mm. The second part of it is deployment of those vaccines right. and you know, we should not um, uh, ignore the fact that this is a global problem. So we need to think globally. We mm-hmm. need to think about you know, how we are going to be deploying things to, you know, um, areas of the world that don't necessarily have the same uh, sort of public health infrastructure. As I said before, you know, this is a global problem and we need to think about it globally. And then on top of that, even if, you know, we think about, you know, vaccines as a one-shot magic bullets the reality is that they are not and and when you think about even your you know our own childhood uh we would actually receive vaccines twice three times four times sometimes in order to be able to get a good amount of response and immunity against you know those microbes that we had to deal with so as a result of that it's not actually out of the realm of possibility that any potential vaccine even if it becomes available and as we just talked about and Byron put it very eloquently we are having some doubts about you know timelines but not only we have doubts about timelines we also have to, doubts about how we are going to be deploying those vaccines not mm-hmm. only in Canada but also globally but on top of that we also have issues with the number of vaccines that or number of inoculations that should be given to any particular individual. I think in some settings, you know, it's easier said than um, it's it's easier to do, such as, for example, when you're dealing with healthcare workers, you know, it's easy to have a very small number of people and then target that very small number of people and give them three or four doses of the vaccine at, 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 at certain points of time in order to boost their immunity to the extent that uh, they're going to be immune. But when it comes down to the general public, then it becomes extremely difficult because it's not only a matter of communication, it's also, you know, a change in behavior in people. Because you would actually think that, you know, a vaccine is going to be able to 
confer immunity upon the, the person who's being vaccinated by just one dose of vaccine. And we know that in most cases, mm. I'm not saying that in all cases, but in most cases, vaccines would actually have to be inoculated multiple times. So the question about you know the elderly or the very young, yes, you can indeed uh, boost their immune system. And as I said before, most of the um, vaccines that we currently use are actually made for very young people. Mm. Uh, they have very limited number of vaccines that are actually made very specifically for the elderly or for the older populations. Mm. Right. Some are, are currently available, but there are many, many vaccines that are actually for the very young people. And for most of those, you have to have a highly uh, regulated vaccine, a vaccine that is proven to be safe, and also a vaccine that can be delivered and, and the infrastructure that would allow you to deliver those vaccines on a number of occasions so that you can um, induce good amount of immunity. So the easy answer to your question, David, would have been yes, but this was my longer answer <laughs> to, 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 your, to your seemingly simple question, which wasn't actually very simple. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. David, could I, could I chime in for a moment? Sure, too? please. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd just like to, to pick up on that because they're very important points. Um, as you know, so you, uh, you're absolutely right, as Cheyenne pointed out, you can boost the immune response. Uh, but also, as you point out, there's there's really two ways that you can boost an immune response. We, we refer these, the, the, the complex terms would be a homologous or a heterologous uh, prime boost vaccination regimen. So that's what I'll, I'll break that down for you. So what it is essentially is you give two doses of a vaccine, at least two doses, as Cheyenne mentioned, uh, it may require more, but if it's homologous, what that means is you're boosting with the same vaccine. So you inject the vaccine, you come in sometime later with the same vaccine. Uh, we know that when you use the same vaccine a second time, it's usually not uh, quite as effective as if you use a different vaccine targeting mm. the same pathogen. Hmm. And that's simply because as you can imagine the immune response that you mount against the vaccine the first time can also help clear that vaccine when you give it the second time. Hmm. Oh, so there's two ways. So then the, the uh, often a superior approach is you vaccinate with one vaccine and you come in with a fundamentally different one at a later time. So those are the two approaches. But either way, when you think about it, this get, comes back uh, to the timeline again, right? Mm -hmm. If you have to administer two doses of the same vaccine or more, that means you have to manufacture at least twice as much of the vaccine sure. to target the population. If you would use two different vaccines, then you're having to develop two separate vaccines that work, right? right so, sure. and then you just double the the, uh, the complications. And the other thing I want to point out is you, you raised a great question when, when asking about the lower immune responses that are typical and the very young and the elderly. The people who have the highest mortality rate by far and the highest incidence of the severe cases of COVID-19 are the elderly in our population, right? Um, this is well established, those over 65. So, any vaccine that we develop, ideally, uh, where this can be by far the most effective in terms of saving lives and reducing severity of disease is in the elderly. And as Cheyenne pointed out, the vast majority of our vaccines are designed to induce immune responses early on in life. And if you think about it, you know, we're all familiar with the sort of uh, degradation of many physiological systems, the mm -hmm. decline and mm -hmm. the function of many physiological systems as we age. And the immune system is no different. As we age, our, the, the, our immune system does not function as efficiently. And it's well established that a vaccine that works very well in younger people uh, 
don't work nearly as well in the elderly. And so for sure in that population, one of the logical uh, um, solutions to that might be giving more than one dose and, and boosting the vaccine. Mm. But then this puts this in perspective with what we were discussing earlier as well. Now you have to ask, when these vaccines are being tested in healthy volunteers, and that makes sense, you wouldn't want to do the testing on elderly volunteers because first you want to establish safety in, in the population in which you think the vaccine is going to be most safe. Uh, but now we go back to what I mentioned before with some of this data that was released, right? Eight volunteers and three had severe adverse events. Those were healthy young individuals. And that has forced them to lower their dose as they go further into testing in healthy young individuals. Imagine what the severe adverse events may have potentially looked like had all of those volunteers been elderly. And if you've already had to lower the dose to one now that's, that's less than what you were hoping for, and you know in the elderly the response is going to be even more reduced, you can start seeing, again, why this is going to take so much time, right? And, and so we just want to be open and honest with people as scientists who have a lot of these insights behind the scene. scenes. We just don't want people placing false hope in this, and we certainly don't want uh, governments developing policies around this hope of having a vaccine really quickly. So it gets back to, I think, another point you were making very early on is there are alternatives, right? There are alternatives. One of the things that I would say as one example is maybe some of our resources just start focusing on, for example, drugs that are already approved. They've already been shown to be safe in people um, and are being used in people and, and look at repurposing them. So there are scientists that are interested in this. And what that means is we could take existing drugs and test them to see if they would have an impact on COVID-19, if they would help reduce the infection or help us clear the infections faster. If that were the case, it wouldn't protect the population from infection, but what it would do is as we are naturally acquiring herd immunity, it would allow us to reduce the severity of diseases and it would allow us to reduce the number of deaths associated with it. Byron, Byron, of- By- Byron, sorry, I'm going to have to cut you off because we're going to be cut off. Please don't go away. We will be right back after this with Byron Bridal, Associate Professor of Viral Immunology at the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, as well as Cheyenne Cherif, and he is Professor of Immunology and Associate Dean at the Research and Graduate Studies Department and the University of Guelph right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto, of course, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of the two coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M. Listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we are, uh, we have with us, as we continue our conversation here with Byram Bridal. He's an associate professor of viral immunology at the Department of Pathology, Pathobiology, pardon me, at the University of Guelph, as, as well as Cheyenne Sharif, and he's a professor of immunology and an associate dean in the Research and Graduate Studies Department at the University of Guelph as well. We're talking about COVID-19 and the, the vaccine timeline that uh, for, for both, say, is, is unrealistic to come up with a, a vaccine in the, the amount of time that uh, is being allotted f- to come up with something to fight this, this pandemic uh, about a year, uh, simply because of the rigorous 
things that, that a vaccine has to go through to make sure that it is going to be safe and going to work uh, for humans. For instance, there is um, three steps that it has to go through. A preclinical study, a clinical trial phase, and then that breaks down into three uh, sections as well. And then it goes into the third, which is the largest, and that is the large-scale uh, trial period with humans before it can even uh, start to go out and say, yes, this is passed and uh, it's ready for, for uh, humans to be able to use. But then, of course, it hasn't even made it to the manufacturing stage at that point. All in all, we're looking at, in general, a process of around 10 to 15 years is what it has been in the past. And um, now they have also acknowledged that, that it has gotten down to around four years. And but pushing even that to one year is is extremely unrealistic, not saying it's impossible, but unrealistic. The other thing is that the peer reviews that, that go on and both Byram and, and Shireen were, were talking about this uh, earlier in the conversation. Uh, so, gentlemen, as we as we pick up the conversation on this, they're saying that if we look at the Spanish flu, for instance, there was no vaccine that was created for that. It, it, but it did, over a period of time, it, it sort of mutated, and I, I think it got weaker, and eventually, I guess, the, the herd immunity took over, and it just kind of fizzled out. Is that kind of what happened with that? Uh, so, yes, David, that is correct. Uh, the, the virus started fizzling out. It, it took approximately a, a year, year and a half or so before uh, the, the virus started uh, to just uh, move away from human populations. We don't exactly know how that happened. There are some speculations as uh, as to what might have happened. It's possible uh, that the virus started mutating. The reality is that you know viruses um, appear uh, out of somewhere. It's not as if you know there's some sort of spontaneous generation of viruses. Mm. They come from somewhere. They start mutating. Then they start you know, being transmitted from one human to another human, and then you have uh, an outbreak, and then eventually, in some cases, a pandemic. And by the same token, some viruses basically follow some sort of a reverse order. They start, you know, mutating, and instead of, you know, becoming more virulent, they become less virulent. And by, by, by saying that, what I mean is that they lose their ability to cause disease. The reality is that viruses and, and many other disease-causing microbes are there to adapt to their host. They don't want to kill the yeah. host. So over the evolution of, um, of, of viruses or other disease-causing microbes, they all have a tendency to become less and less virulent. There are some examples that they don't actually become less and less virulent, but mm. by and large, they don't want to kill us. Um, right. Just imagine that the virus causes death in a human being. And as a result of that, that human being is no longer available and mm -hmm. able to transmit the virus to right. another human being. So for the viruses and in order for them to survive, all the hostile environments around them, they actually have to ensure that their host is is, 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 is able to survive. So I think, you know, it, generally speaking, it's quite possible that this virus also over time could lose its virulence. Hopefully it will. And, um, and you're correct, um, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic caused by an, by an influenza virus, at some point of time, it started fizzling out, probably, like I said, you know, due to some mutations. There's also a possibility that there was herd immunity caused mm -hmm. by the virus. We don't mm -hmm. exactly know if that herd immunity was the one that led the virus to uh, to getting fizzled out, or it was mutation of mutations of the virus that started accumulating. There's also some evidence to support that actually when viruses are under pressure, when, for example, there is immunity 
uh, being generated, viruses also have a tendency to mutate themselves, not to become more virulent, but actually to be able to evade the host immune response. So we don't exactly know what might have happened almost 100 or 120 years ago or so, 102 years ago or so, but we mm. do know that the virus began uh, moving itself out of human populations. And as a result of that, other viruses came in. And eventually that virus also became um, a, a virus that could stay with humans and not necessarily causing a huge amount of damage to human health. Hmm. That's interesting. So do, do we do we see the, the, the remnants of that somewhere in, in, our, in our DNA or, or uh, in, in humans as, as an example of that? Uh, and maybe either with the Spanish flu or other viruses? I could comment on that, uh, David. Sure. No, the, this isn't a virus that integrates into our into the genome of our cells, so we don't have to worry about that. Mm. Um, but but one thing that that I would add, um, you know, it's interesting you brought up a historical case of influenza virus, because there's actually um, another historical case that has largely been ignored, um, it seems, by the media. Um, that's directly relevant, actually, to what's going on right now with COVID nineteen. So. Uh, a lot of people don't realize in the, there was a, a case in the 1970s. Um, it was in the mid-70s, and it actually started with um, soldiers that were stationed at a, at a base in the U.S. Uh, and what happened was um, uh, 230, I think it was 230 of the soldiers there fell ill, and that was actually, and it was determined that was uh, caused by an influenza virus. And uh, one of them actually died. Uh, but only one died, and, and this and this was actually somebody who was actually put through a uh, a, a, a rigorous um, endurance hike. Uh, I can't. It was one of these things, right? When they were they were hiking something like thirty kilometers or something with all their gear. So that's probably what pushed this person. They collapsed in the middle of that hike and then ultimately died. Mm. Um, but what was uh, notable is this caused great concern. Uh, because that virus actually was genetically determined to be fairly similar to the one that caused this outbreak in 1918 that you that you mm. already cited. Mm. It was, and so what happened was the, the government at the time in the U.S. actually got very worried because of the similarity and, and was worried this virus could cause a similar pandemic. And uh, interestingly, they at that time also decided to uh, go full speed ahead with developing a vaccine um, it was fast-tracked, nowhere near to the degree like what the, the, the fast-tracking attempt is right now. Uh, but what's notable about that is um, this, this fast-track vaccine in the 70s for the flu. Uh, ultimately, what was interesting is, is before that fast-track vaccine was, was uh, released to, to, for use in the public, um, a, a questionnaire was put out and, uh, and it looked like uh, a survey was done and, and about 50% of the U.S. population indicated that they had intentions to take this vaccine once it was developed. However, once it started being administered, this fast-track vaccine, it actually caused uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 500 cases of paralysis. Jeez. And mm. um, the deaths of 25 people were directly mm. attributed to this vaccine mm. as well. Mm. As a consequence, by the end of that year, uh, only 22% of the population had been vaccinated. Most people at that point didn't want to have anything to do with the vaccine, perceived mm. to be too unsafe. So there's an interesting case, historical case, of uh, one of the potential dangers of rushing a vaccine. 
And in that case, it sounds like the, the cure was worse than the actual virus itself. It absolutely was. Yes, you're right. It, which takes me to another point, and that is um, this virus, COVID-19. Uh, what do we know about its its potency? It's, you know, it's um, uh, uh, how... Um, yeah, it, it just uh, just how um, pa- uh, powerful it is compared to the common virus, because every year people die from uh, a common the common cold, the common influenza that that, that we get every year as well. Uh, yeah, I could comment. I could start with that, David, and pass it over to sure. Cheyenne. So, the this virus. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So there, it's very interesting as we look at the data that are coming in. There's. Uh, a wide spectrum in terms of the the severity of this disease so it's very very clear that elderly people are this virus the SARS coronavirus 2 is very dangerous to elderly individuals so uh, anybody over 60 especially over 65 tend to be uh, relatively susceptible uh, by far in a way the largest number of cases of severe COVID-19 and uh, also by far the highest incidence of deaths associated with COVID-19 or in the elderly population. Um, and once you get to younger individuals, uh, most of those that have had severe cases and or died um, had some kind of complicating um, factor to go along with it. For example, maybe they were immunosuppressed. Uh, and, and in fact, when it comes to the youngest in our population, so if you look at the demographic that's 20 years old and younger, in fact, we've had uh, just over 200 cases, I believe, in Canada of COVID-19 and, and people 20 or younger and no deaths so far. Um, but, but you're absolutely correct. So uh, last year's annual flu, which was certainly was not you know, one of the more severe ones that we've had, uh, actually ended up infecting um, and killing 20 Canadians under the age of 20. So mm-hmm. you could certainly make an argument that for Canadians under 20, the annual flu is maybe more dangerous and we certainly don't uh, shut down um, or, or go into this lockdown mode for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one could start to question whether, you know, some of the precautions that we have in place could be eased off for, for some Canadians, especially the younger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe they could be going back to school in, in you know, in class right. come September. Um, oh. and, and the other thing that I just wanted to point out, because it, this question leads to another very interesting piece of biology. And because the old it's the oldest uh, people and, and, you know, those Canadians that are most susceptible by far to this virus. Um, one of the things I just wanted to point out is uh, the, the vaccines that are being developed right now, well, vaccine development in general tends to actually ignore the elderly. Mm. Uh, it's very interesting. It mm. goes all the way back to the preclinical testing that you cited, which is the starting point for mm-hmm. vaccines. Mm-hmm. And if you just do, uh, I, I would challenge any listener right now to go online and search up uh, scholarly articles that deal with vaccine development. And um, for any scientific paper, peer-reviewed paper that's been published and, and publishing you know, a new vaccine that's in development, uh, just a quick search. In, in, in all these scientific articles, there's, there, will, there will always be a section that's called materials and methods. And in there, 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 there if a vaccine has been developed uh, in an animal model, there'll be a, a subsection that'll be uh, titled with the name of the animal. So mo- usually it's mice that are used. So there'll be a section, subsection called mice. And if you look at that, what you'll find is, um, oh, I would argue, you know, at least 99% of vaccine development papers utilize animals that are very young. 
you know, young and immunologically mature. And as a consequence, mm. our vaccines are not being developed in a way that is ideal for use in um, older individuals. And we know for a fact that vaccines um, tend to work much poorer in older people. So I would argue that in fact, uh, what we're learning from this COVID-19 and the fact that it's targeting elderly people so much, this has really put a focus on them and highlighted a huge weakness actually in the field of vaccinology. And we really need to start thinking about um, developing vaccines with the elderly in mind. Mm. A good point, a good point. Um, gentlemen, if you don't mind me asking, uh, as we, now we're getting, you know, we're, we're, we have about maybe 10 minutes left or so. I'm just wondering, um, you know, with the, with the, the idea of trying to get this vaccine developed within a year, uh, you know, which you say is, is unrealistic, it, it, what is the what is the the influence of modern technology on all of this? We we always see every, almost every year, you know, like there's a new phone with with advanced uh, software on it. So I, I think the general public has a has a sense that we are in a time where technologically we are advancing in leaps and bounds by the year, if not months. Um, is that is that reasonable to say, or is that difference? In, in the kind of work that, that you guys are doing? Uh, maybe I can, I can jump in here, David. Mm -hmm. uh, so first of all, I, I, would, I would argue that uh, necessity is the mother of all inventions. Mm -hmm. I think you know, th there is necessity right at the moment and it could actually lead to a lot of innovations and inventions mm -hmm. uh, for the future. Whether or not those innovations and inventions would actually be useful or usable for uh, combating this pandemic, that remains to be seen. Mm. Uh, first and foremost, I've, I just wanted to re-emphasize what Byram just mentioned in regard to uh, vaccines for the elderly. You know, the way we develop vaccines, you know, is not actually for, for the elderly. M up to this point for the last century or so, since the beginning of the 20th century, since Louis Pasteur developed the first vaccine for humans, against rabies, for the most part, we've been really trying to develop better tech vaccines and better technologies for vaccine uh, production for uh, the very young, probably for adolescents, but not so much for the elderly. This is actually one of those times that we really need to take a better look at our very susceptible populations, i.e. the elderly, and develop better vaccine technologies for that particular age group. I think this is this is probably, you know, something that, that's going to come out of, you know, this pandemic, the need for better vaccination and better strategies, not only, you know, for biosecurity of long-term care homes, but also, you know, how to protect them, such as, for example, the use of vaccines or other types of um, prophylactic strategies or therapeutic strategies. I think that's definitely one of the first things, you know, on my agenda, if I were to uh, be a pharmaceutical company, you know, developing things, you know, for human consumption. And and on top of that, when uh, you, you ask a very good question, are they actually technologies? There are, in fact, good technologies available, uh, such as, for example, the Moderna technology that many of your listeners have, have heard about. The Moderna technology was actually the first technology that was used in the beginning of this pandemic in March of 2020 in the U.S. And uh, I remember that Byram also alluded to some of the, uh, I would say, 
issues associated with the technology. The technology, there's nothing wrong with the technology. The, the only thing that is wrong with the technology is that it hasn't been used in humans. So mm. you have to take it with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean that it doesn't, it's not going to work. It only means that you should take it with a grain of salt. And if the governments uh, of Canada or the US or other governments want to take things into consideration for their planning in order to inform their decisions and in, in order to inform their policies, uh, they have to take these technologies, the, these new technologies with a grain of salt because they haven't really been proven to be, first of all, safe, and they also haven't been proven to be efficacious and effective. So that's why Byram and I wanted to warn um, our, our, our your listeners and also warn our governments that um, things would actually have to be taken into consideration when policies are being formed, even though, you know, um, th there are technologies available, whether or not those technologies are safe and effective, th those remain to be seen. But I can tell you, we can we can talk about this very same subject in three, four, five years down the road, and we would actually have a very different conversation. If I look in into my crystal ball, I would actually say this pandemic really accelerated and catalyzed the process for a lot of inventions and innovations, mm. some of which are going to be related to vaccines against pandemic pathogens. So in the future, maybe 10 years, 15 years down the road, you and I are not going to have this sort of conversation because hopefully there would be no lockdown because hopefully there is going to be new technologies available and on board that we can plug and play. You can name your favorite disease-causing <laughs> microbe. We can develop a vaccine in a matter of months, not in a matter of years. Mm. But that that remains to be seen. I think they, mm. um, uh, that that's uh, that's basically my my bottom line message. So mm. I'm going to take it. Uh, I'm just going to turn it over to Byram for any additional comments. Okay. Is, is there time, David, for a couple more comments? Uh, sure, quickly. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, what my colleague Cheyenne mentioned. Um, in addition to that, what one thing that's kind of interesting is um, what what may be even, uh, I guess, equally important to the development of new technologies right now are the refinements in the uh, clinical trial process. So that process has, uh, for years, been recognized by the scientific community to have been bogged down by an excessive amount of bureaucracy. The, the, the amount of paperwork that is involved is enormous. Um, the time required to, to get uh, the paperwork approved is, is, uh, takes a long time. And uh, so one of the benefits that's coming from this is, um, again, one of the necessities right now is to trim a lot of the bureaucracy with the process. And that, I think, will be of great general benefit in the future because um, if our regulatory agencies like Health Canada continue to apply these efficiencies to future clinical trials, this could be a benefit to any disease in Canada, uh, mm. right? Any, any disease intervention that has to go through the clinical trial process could potentially be uh, sped up, and that could see more novel, uh, potentially useful exper experimental therapies getting to people quicker. Um, but with that said, I just want to highlight again that there is sort of a minimum amount to which that for which technology can allow us to cut down the time for making a vaccine. Mm. So there's an inherent biology, right, that, that cannot be sped up. Right. You can have all the technology in the world, but you can't, for example, change the time it takes for a person to mount an immune response. So, for mm. example, when, when an experiment is done with a vaccine, an individual needs to be vaccinated, uh, their immune responses need to be assessed, 
Um, it takes a couple of weeks at least for a T-cell response to, to peak. It takes uh, at least three weeks for an antibody response to peak. Um, and so th these are times that we can't shorten with technology. We have to wait before those assessments can be done. And I just like to finish off with this one thought, which is um, epidemiologists have told us that this pandemic could last in the ballpark of two years, and that's certainly debatable. Um, but uh, most people acknowledge that if a vaccine is going to be particularly useful, it's going to have to confer long-term protection. And mm. by long-term protection, people are thinking at least a year, one year of immunity. Mm. And the reason is if you start vaccinating people now, um, but their, their protection from the virus only lasts six months, and it takes you a year to vaccinate the population, um, and the latter half of that year, the people who were immunized initially are now susceptible again to the right. disease, right? Right. And if you want to be sure that a vaccine is lasting, that is providing protective immunity for a year, it obviously takes a year to assess that. So that uh, is food for thought. Right. Uh, gentlemen, it's so fascinating to speak with you on this topic, and I wish we had even more time because, you know, you bring up the, the point about the elderly population. I was just thinking there as, as you guys were talking about how much has changed in the last hundred years, uh, you know, just globally, uh, you, you know, in terms of, of, of uh, the expansion of the population and also the demographic of the population. This is a, uh, understand that it's, a, you know, there, it's a much more uh, elderly population population, at least in Canada, maybe North America. Uh, some of the other points that we're seeing with this, uh, I just remember reading or hearing something about that uh, south of the border, we're seeing younger people that are succumbing to the virus. And, you know, that brings in a whole lot of other questions. They're thinking, of course, it has something to do with uh, with diet uh, and, and being obese and those kind of things. Anyway, we, we unfortunately, we don't have time to explore all that, but maybe we will. We'll have to have you guys back on again in, in a little while, and we'll do a recap uh, once more, if you guys are game. Sounds good to me. That's good. All right. Cheyenne Sharif is a professor of immunology and associate dean at uh, research and graduate studies at the University of Guelph. And Byram Bridal is associate professor of viral immunology at the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. It's been a pleasure to have them on the show. And that is the show for today. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.